Philippians chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. We have been spending the last several weeks walking through these three verses. They're kind of the front gate or the entrance to the rest of the chapter in Philippians chapter 3. And yet Paul has some very distinct things that he's saying before he gets into the rest of chapter 3. Which, by the way, is incredibly personal, incredibly profound, incredibly Christ-centered, and I'm eager to get there. But before we do, verses 1, 2, and 3 have their proper place and therefore deserve proper attention. If you remember back a few weeks, verse 1 is the command that he issues to the Philippian Christians and by extension us, and that command is to rejoice in the Lord. God actually delights in, finds pleasure in, our rejoicing. And so this isn't a suggestion. Uh, this isn't even just instruction. This is a command. God commands us to rejoice, to be joyful people. But specifically, He dictates where that joy comes from. It's joy in the Lord, isn't it? It's for brothers and sisters, all Christians, no matter our level of maturity, how long we've been believers, but all of us are directed to find joy in the Lord and to live in that joy. Well, then we came to verse 2 last week. And I told you, verse 2 and 3 are the how and the why of rejoicing. Verse 2 is the how, and it's a warning to watch out for false teachers. In fact, he calls them dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. And he repeats that phrase, look out. It's an active warning, an active watchfulness, an open-eyed awareness. And so how are we to have joy in the Lord? It's by resisting, knowing, and rejecting what is false and clinging to what is true. Pushing away the false gospel that's perpetrated by false teachers and embracing the true gospel of Christ. Do you want to have joy in the Lord? Do you want to obey the command? Then resist falsehood, whether it comes from false teachers or even the world in general, and know and hold fast to what God tells us in His Word. The Gospel that comes from heaven. That's the how. Verse 3 today is the why. Why are we to have joy in the Lord? Why should we rejoice in the Lord? And He tells us in verse 3, he says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What Paul does here in verse 3 is astonishing, profound, in every sense of the word, it's amazing. He's clarifying to the Philippian believers what the sign of the new covenant is. The mark of, of a relationship with God. What marks us out? What are the hallmarks? What are the standards or the signs of us being the people of God? He tells us in verse 3. This is what he's explaining. And it's right on the heels of calling those in verse 2 mutilators of the flesh which is, in my estimation, a direct reference back to Old Testament circumcision. So he's saying here, in essence, there is now a difference. There's something new, something different between Old Testament circumcision and now this new covenant that we live under because of the blood of Christ. The signs are different. The marks are different. The meanings are different. 
So let's consider just briefly what Old Testament circumcision is, and then we'll come to consider what he means in verse 3 by calling us the circumcision. Flip over um, all the way to the beginning of your Bible to Genesis chapter 17. I want to take you to the first instance we find Old Testament circumcision mentioned. There are many passages we could look at, but this is the, the first, um, first reference, the initiation, the, the establishment from God to Abram of circumcision. Genesis chapter 17. I'm going to read rather quickly and then try to condense it down. In verse 1, Abram was 99 years old when the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, and you and after uh, you and your offspring after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people he has broken my covenant. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 17, we find God established this sign of the covenant, the old covenant that He makes with Abraham. And it's the sign of circumcision. And to save you all the details, let me just tell you, it's meant to be a permanent mark in the flesh, a lifetime reminder of God's promise to His people that He will give them a land. He will make a people come from Abraham. And through that people, He'll redeem them. A constant, generational, comprehensive, permanent, in the flesh reminder that God has made a promise and will keep it. Furthermore, it's not just a reminder. It's an external testimony that those people, those Israelites, they are the people of God. So, within the Israel nation, within the Israelite people, we have this reminder in our flesh, and external to that, every other nation looks at them and says, those are the people marked out by God. And that's the point, in general words, general terms, that's the point of circumcision. To be a constant reminder of God's promise, to be an external testimony to belonging to God Himself. And yet, even within that old covenant, there's anticipation of a new covenant. Flip over very quickly to Jeremiah 31. Verse 31. 
I don't often do this, but I'm making you work your fingers out today. It's good for us to see these things. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Hallelujah. Flip over to Ezekiel 36. Just a few pages to your right. Ezekiel 36, another reference in the Old Testament to this new covenant. Verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And on and on and on. One more reference. Matthew chapter 26. If you'll flip over to the New Testament now. Matthew chapter 26 verse 26. For so long, the people of Israel had lived under this old covenant that God had made, this covenant that was marked out and signed with the act and rite of circumcision that was to be, remember, an internal reminder of God's promise and an external testimony of belonging to God's people. And then there's these anticipated passages, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, of a new covenant, a new day coming where God deals with, relates to His people differently. And then in Matthew 26, verse 26, we see, Jesus speaking about this covenant, he says towards the end of his earthly life before the crucifixion, the Last Supper, he institutes the Lord's Supper and says, well, verse 26, Matthew tells us, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, 
For this is my blood of the covenant. Some Bibles say of the new covenant. Which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now we find ourselves back in Philippians 3. And Paul has just written to this church and he's saying, hey, you know those false teachers who are coming to you and they're telling you that to be saved you have to believe the Gospel and be circumcised. You have to believe the Gospel and keep the law. You have to believe the Gospel and add to it. Well, they're mutilators of the flesh. Because circumcision is no longer necessary. There's a new covenant that we now live under. And that new covenant has a new mark and a new sign that comes along with it. And thus, the old covenant sign of circumcision isn't necessary any longer. In fact, it's even, I would say, unimportant. Because as God says in Hebrews 8.6, the new covenant is enacted on better promises and signified in greater ways. And so he says, don't believe that you have to add old covenant works, old covenant signs to your salvation. And this is where we get into verse 3, the most profound statement that I have contemplated in a long time. He says, we are the circumcision. Church, no longer is there the need for a sign in the flesh to mark out and remind us of the covenant of God. Now, because of the work of Christ, we personally are the sign of the covenant. Individually, corporately, we are the mark of God's promise to redeem. Let's consider the language here. Notice he doesn't say we are circumcised. Because that would be an act. An act accomplished. He says we are the circumcision. It's an identity term. It's how we're now defined. It's how we're now known. It's how we're now marked out. It's how we define ourselves. So the new covenant sign of God, the the work that Christ accomplished is now marked out personally. From the inside out, not the outside in. We have become the sign of God's redemption. We have become the sign of relationship with God. We have become the sign of the people of God. You see, it's no longer circumcision in the flesh. It is now the transformation of the heart that marks out God's people. So I'm a language guy. I like looking at the words. Let's consider the phrase in verse 3. For we are the circumcision. Let's consider it word by word. That word for could be because. And so verse 2, the warning to watch out for the dogs and evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. The reason it's given is because... There's a new sign and we are that new sign. It's interesting to me also that he uses the word we. He means there both individually, but also corporately. You and I individually as children of God are individually the signs 
of, re- of God's redemption, of the new covenant that God has made with us, the new promise. And so everywhere we go, we live as living testimonies, living signs of God's saving grace, don't we? The Bible calls us light in the darkness. It calls us salt in the world. It calls us the aroma of life and death. Because everywhere we go, we are the living, breathing testimony, the living, breathing sign that God is a saving God. And yet, at the same time, in no what greater way is that sign manifested than when the body gathers together as the church. You see, every member of the body has the privilege of being a member of the body. But what makes being a member of the body so glorious is when the body comes together as the body. And so you and I can go about our day, we can interact with our families, we can go to our workplace, we can go grocery shopping, we can walk down the street and we get to be living examples of the sign of God's promise to save. And yet, much more glorious is when we gather together regularly as His people, as one body to worship Him, then we shine that light in a greater brightness. We, collectively, every Lord's Day when we worship, are a screaming testimony that God saves people of all kinds, from all places, and all backgrounds, and in all ways. That our God is a loving God, a kind God, a gentle God, a forgiving God. And He's a God who sent His Son to die for humanity so that whoever would believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus would be saved. Every single brother and sister is a glaring reminder of that. We have that reminder when we sit alone in our living rooms, yes, internally, that God has kept His promise. He does save. I know that by the testimony of the Spirit in my heart, but every Lord's Day when we gather together as His people, we have glaring external reminders, testimonies that God is that saving God. So we, he says, are the circumcision. Verse 3, he also says, we are are is an important word in this phrase because it means presently. Not a one-time isolated event in the past and not something that we're waiting for in the future. We presently are the sign of God's redeeming grace. That's important because as believers we tend to forget this sometimes. We so long for heaven. We so long for the glories of being in the presence of Jesus and rightly so we should that sometimes we forget we're citizens of the kingdom even now. And that some of the benefits of heaven are even afforded to us now. That we are actually living eternal life now. Not just one day, but today. And so we're not just the sign of the mark of God in the future when we're glorified with Christ. And we're not just the sign of the the mark of God and the redeeming grace of God when we are justified before God. We are presently, constantly, currently the sign of God's redeeming love. Paul goes on, he says, we are the... You're wondering, how am I going to get anything out of the word the? Well, this is what I get out of the word the. It's singular. There is no other... Needed work to be added. There is nothing else that's required. We are the 
mark of God's redeeming love singularly by the work of Christ. And then back to the word circumcision, this identity word that defines who we are. It's, it's not an act done, as I said. It's now what we are known for, known by. Church, we are the circumcision. We are walking examples of the grace of Christ, of the power of the Gospel, of the reality of salvation. So, God has determined that He will do this comprehensive work in us. And that when it's done in us, we ourselves will be the sign of salvation. The constant calling of God to redeem humanity. But we have two questions I want to spend the rest of our time answering this morning. Number one, what has He done? And number two, how do we know He's done it? Or what's the, uh, how do we show it? What's the manifestation of it? We've talked a lot about already here the being the circumcision of Christ, but what exactly does that mean? What exactly has He done to make us the mark of redemption? And then secondly, how, how do we know that's true? How do we manifest that in our lives? So first, what has He done? Now to understand what Paul means by the phrase circumcision and by applying it to us as an identity term, we need to look at other instances of him using that same language and thankfully we have uh, that very instance just a few pages to your right in Colossians chapter 2 verse 11 so if you would please flip to Colossians chapter 2 verse 11 very important text I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time giving you the details of this text because I preached on it about a year ago if you want more detail you can go find it on our church website Colossians 2, verse 11, Paul writes and says, In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He has set aside, nailing it to the cross. What does Paul mean when he calls us the circumcision? In Colossians 2, he actually makes it more specific. He says, we are the circumcision of Christ. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, God foretold this moment when He said, circumcise your hearts that you would be right before Me. What does Paul mean in calling us the circumcision of Christ? He means that God has done a work within our hearts and that work is that He has removed our sin and our sinful flesh. What does it mean to be the circumcision of God? 
the circumcision of Christ. It means to be transformed at the very core of who we are. John 3, Jesus calls it being born again. Given a new heart, like Ezekiel 36 talked about. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul calls it being a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. You're now a new creation. In Philippians 3 and Colossians 2, Paul calls it the circumcision of Christ. You have had sin and its effects removed from us so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you've had your sinful, corrupt nature crucified. You have victory over your sinful nature. And though we still wrestle with it and are tormented by it today, we know that in the end, it goes away. Holiness and righteousness wins. What does it mean to be the circumcision? It means to be transformed by the grace of Christ. To possess the salvation of God. It simply means to be alive. To no longer be dead. To no longer be in darkness. To no longer be blind. To no longer be defined by the world. But to be made alive, defined by Christ, and changed at the very core of who we are. So I would say this, then, the sign of the new covenant is not circumcision like the old covenant. The sign of the new covenant is transformed people who are indwelt by God's Spirit. You and I, again, through the transformation that Christ has wrought in our hearts and then manifests in our lives, we are the sign of God's gracious saving plan in the Gospel. Of the power of the Gospel to not only save us and just declare us right in words, but the power of the Gospel to actually make us different people. I hope you join with me in testifying that I'm not who I want to be, but by God's grace, I'm not who I used to be. That is what it means to be the circumcision of Christ. That's what it means to be transformed by the Gospel. Not just to be declared right legally, though that's very important, but to also manifest that declaration by being different people. And not different people because we just grit our teeth and try really hard, but different people because our desires are changed, our thoughts are changed, our pleasures are changed, our values are changed, our morals are changed, our very outlook on life is changed. We are living, breathing examples of the power of the Gospel, church. And so our command in verse 1 to rejoice in the Lord happens because the Lord has done this completely comprehensive work not in our flesh externally like under the Old Covenant, but in our hearts because we're in a new covenant with God. That's how we rejoice in the Lord. That's why we can rejoice in the Lord. That's why we should rejoice in the Lord. Because we're firmly and solely grounded in the truth that Christ has changed us, redeemed us, that He saved us. And so it's all about what He has done. It's all about what He's making us. It's all about what we're being made into. It's all about 
His living water poured into our hearts that gives us joy that transcends our situations, our circumstances. I asked you a few weeks ago when we looked at verse 1, how, how do brothers and sisters who are tortured for the faith endure with joy? All throughout church history, how have our brothers and sisters been martyred for the faith? How have they gone to their death for the name of Christ with joy? And today, how do our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan endure with hope and with joy? It's the same way you and I should have joy. Same reason you and I should have joy. It's because we're no longer dead people. And we're not people who have to earn God's love. We're not people who have to trust in our abilities. We're people loved and saved by God's grace and, and therefore secure in that love and that grace for all eternity. When that's the foundation of our joy, it transcends all of life's difficulties and circumstances and situations. And when we possess that joy, no matter what comes or happens in our lives, we just further live as the circumcision of Christ. We further live as an internal reminder of the promises of God that He keeps those promises and as an external reminder of the saving testimony of God. Well, secondly, I, I told you I had two questions. The second question is, how do we know that this work has happened in our heart? How do we know that we've actually been saved and transformed? Assurance, assurance of faith more than just declaration? And furthermore, how do we know that we are testifying rightly as the sign of the new covenant, as the mark of belonging to God. Well, Paul tells us in this verse, verse 3, he mentions three things. Number one, he mentions we worship by the Spirit of God. We worship by the Spirit of God. Humanity is, by default, a worshiping species. A worshiping creature. I like to pretend like I know something and so occasionally I spout out Latin words like I understand Latin. But I'm going to do that this morning so that I can kind of try to connect with this. We know ourselves to be homo sapiens. That means the thinking man. I told you a few weeks ago, we're not just homo sapiens in that we think. We're also homo theologicus. Which means we're theological creatures. Which means we understand and we think and we relate to everything as it relates to God. Everything about life is in relation to God or the lack thereof of a belief in God. And we base everything off of that. So we're not just a thinking creature. We're a knowing creature who can specifically know God and know reality in relationship to God. And since we're homo theologicus, theological creatures, we're also homo cultus. Where we get the word cult but in Latin, it means the worshiping creature. If we're theological creatures and can know God, we must therefore also be worshiping creatures. And we are. God has created us with an embedded impulse to worship. The problem is we worship the wrong things. 
And we worship in the wrong way. And that because of sin, worshiping God is not natural to us. Rebelling against God is what's natural. So then what does it say about a person who actually delights in worshiping God? What does the whole book of Psalms testify to us about? That there's a whole book dedicated to the exaltation and praise and worship and adoration of God Himself. To look at a brother or a sister and to see them have joy in worship. What does that say about them? If not, that the gospel has an, a, power, a powerful effect when it saves a person. That it transforms them at the very core of who they are. It changes their pleasures. And now they actually delight in worshiping God. You realize how abnormal that is to natural, sinful human behavior. To spend your life for, to serve another, to praise someone other than yourself. And that's exactly what Paul says is a manifestation of the transforming power of God's grace upon our hearts. We worship Him. You see, if the Gospel really has impacted you, then you don't just come to church on the Lord's Day because that's what you've always done growing up or because Granny Smith always made me go. You come to church every Lord's Day because you delight in being with the people of God to worship Him. Yes, there are many people who come to church who are not Christians. And I would tell you that such people do not come out of pure delight and joy. They come out of duty. They come out of guilt. Or they come for social reasons. But God's people, who are the sign of God's redeeming grace, who've had their hearts transformed by salvation, Manifest that they belong to God when they love to worship Him. When it becomes the bread and butter of their existence. When it becomes the very passion of their hearts. When they long to be with God's people worshiping. Now there are two kinds of worship the Bible talks about. Corporate worship, which is the love of being with God's people and formally exalting Him in the presence of the whole congregation. That's what we do every Lord's Day. There's also personal worship. The Bible defines it as living a life worthy of Christ. Serving Him, seeking Him, submitting to Him. There's your alliteration for the day. It's a life worthy of Christ. The genuine Christian who knows true salvation lives a life that constantly praises, adores, and exalts God and then loves to express that life in the congregation of God's people through corporate worship. You have often heard me say from this very pulpit that worship is the culmination of our faith. It's the highest ex expression of our salvation. Because nothing else explains why we would take time out of our lives to gather together to sing praises 
to a God we have not seen nor heard, but believe in. You see, if our hearts are not redeemed, if they're not enlivened by grace, then we have no true pleasure in the right worship of God. But if we've tasted of His grace, though we may go through winter-like seasons, the chief pattern of our life becomes in true delight in exalting His name. Individually and in the church. So I say worship is the easiest chief and primary expression of a transformed heart of new life in Christ. Now Paul's not talking about worship generally in verse 3. He's actually talking about it explicitly in a narrow sense. He says, worship by the Spirit of God. Now I do not draw a connection here to John chapter 4 where Jesus talks about worship and He says, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship by spirit and truth. And the reason I point that out is because I don't want you to go there either. John chapter 4 and verses 24 and surrounding, Jesus is talking about worshiping in our spirit. But in, in Philippians 3, 3, Paul's talking about worshiping in the Holy Spirit. And so what does he mean by that? He means two primary things. He means we're enabled by the Spirit. To adore God, to know God, to love God, to exalt God, to know what's true and to know what's false. John 10, my sheep hear my voice, they know me. They don't listen to another, they don't listen to a thief. They hear my voice and they know me. How? It's by the indwelling presence of God and His Spirit in our hearts. And so the Spirit enables us to rightly worship, indeed enjoy to rightly worship God. But also... When we worship by the Holy Spirit, we worship personally. One of the greatest blessings of knowing Christ is that we do not need a fellow human being to be a mediator between us and God. That we have one mediator, Jesus Christ, who stands in the presence of God on our behalf and bids us Come to God personally. Indeed, the Bible commands us personally come to the throne of grace. To worship by the Spirit means we are not only enabled by God and inspired by God, but through the work of God, we are able to personally come before God. So it's the Mark of salvation to be a worshiping people who delight in worship and who do so personally. And in the context of this passage, we are to conclude that the worship of God is not just part of our manifestation of being the, the sign of the Gospel's power. It's also the very fuel for the fire of our joy. In fact, I would say necessary for true joy in the Lord. And two things, when, when people are really down, Christians specifically, when they're really struggling, when, when they're really downcast in their spirit, well, there's really three things that always immediately come to mind. 
One, it's sin that we're hiding. But two, it's either that we're not serving God in His church or we're not worshiping God in our lives. And the reason I always come to those three things first is because worship is one of the quickest ways of experiencing joy in the Lord. Of guarding it and sustaining it and experiencing it. Secondly, Paul tells us in chapter 3, verse 3, we don't just worship by the Spirit of God, we glory in Christ Jesus. Glory here can also mean boast. Where we once boasted in ourselves, our ability, our reputation, our money, our intellect, our accomplishments, we no longer boast in those things. We no longer value what the world values. We no longer boast like the world boasts. We no longer treasure what the world tells us to treasure. We boast in the value of another. Our Lord. And as Christians, our reputation and our identity is entirely wrapped up in Him. Indeed, it's even swallowed up by Him. He now defines who we are. He now determines our life's purpose and direction. He now is the only one who ultimately gives us meaning. And we show that our hearts have been changed, changed by God's grace when we no longer find glory in ourselves, but only in our relationship to Christ. I think this is partly what Jesus means when He calls us to deny ourselves if we're going to follow Him. In one hand, He means that we should find no eternal saving value in our efforts or our status or our standing or our abilities or whatever else. Your American citizenship, your Christian heritage, your bumper sticker, none of that makes you right with God. But I think He also means when He says to deny ourselves, I think He also means to no longer be defined by yourself. but to find your soul identity in Him. You see, you're no longer John Q. Public. You're now a follower of Christ. And you may bear the last name of your biological parents, or maybe not, but what really matters is that you bear the name of your Heavenly Father, that you are marked as Christian. So true salvation is exemplified not just in a worshiping person, but in a person who looks to Christ alone for their identity, for their definition, for their purpose and their meaning and their satisfaction and their fulfillment in this life. The Bible is quite clear, church. It is only when we abandon ourselves and when we cling to Christ that we find not only true life, but true rejoicing. The kind of joy that God desires us to have. And so to be the circumcision of Christ means to put away yourself and embrace the new heart given to you by the Lord. And I'm speeding along here, so let's get to verse. the last phrase in verse 3. Number 3 is that Paul tells us the circumcision of Christ is a person who puts no confidence in the flesh. I'm not going to spend much time here because he spends the rest of the chapter explicitly explaining that last phrase. So we'll get into it more and more. But just in general here, it means that we no longer trust in ourselves, our works, or our abilities. 
We don't even trust in our own judgment or our own hearts. Now when Paul says, put no confidence in the flesh, he's using that phrase actively. Which means as Christians, we actively and continually and consciously choose and decide not to put confidence in our flesh. Which means we not only agree with that phrase, but we embrace it wholeheartedly. And even declare it. We're not ashamed about that truth. We put away our pride and we embrace the humility of Christ and we tell a watching world, I have no reason to put confidence in my flesh. Because nothing of my own doing makes me right with God. Nothing of myself earns His love or His favor. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we're told that we have peace with God because we're justified by faith, not by works. In Romans chapter 3, both twice mentioned in verse 20 and 28, it says, by works of the law, no person will be justified. Romans 3, 10 and following, no one is good, no, not one. No one seeks for God. No one does what is right. Even here in Philippians 3, 9. Well, the last part of verse 8, Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. True Christianity is found in the the abandonment of self-justification. Not in manufactured righteousness. But in faith in Christ that leads to the hope of eternal life. You see, to be right with God is to be swallowed up in Christ. Not to put on a good show. Not merely behavior change. But to be transformed from the inside out. I want you to notice real quickly before I wrap up here the the progression of intensity in verse 3. It's in reverse order. Paul has progressed from, or he has descended rather, from worship and then down to glory in Christ Jesus, then down to confidence in the flesh. The order here is that you will only worship rightly by the Spirit if you glory in Christ Jesus. And you'll only glory in Christ Jesus if you put no confidence in the flesh. But if you put no confidence in the flesh, and you're forced to come to glory to Christ alone and not in yourself, and if that boasting in the Lord leads to genuine worship, then you have the marks of being the circumcision of Christ. You bear the mark of the new covenant. You are the sign of and the testimony of the Gospel's power to change your heart. Transformation of the heart is what it means to be a Christian. And it starts with abandonment to self and clinging to Jesus. And it's never purely defined by behavior modification. It always, always, always begins at the very core of who you are. 
Rejoice in the Lord, Paul says. But that joy is to be grounded not in ourselves, but in Christ alone. It's accomplished when we guard against falsehood and cling to what is right. And when we realize what Christ has done for us and cutting away the old self of our hearts, giving us a new self, tying us together for all eternity with Him. We worship. We rejoice. Because Christ has saved us and changed us. Father, the work of Your Son is beyond our understanding and beyond our comprehension, beyond what we can contain in one single thought within these feeble and finite minds. And yet when we study them, when we study the things of Your Son and the, the work that You have wrought upon our own hearts, we, we're thrilled, we're stirred to, to joy, to adoration, to thanksgiving. Help us to live as the sign of Your saving power. And cause us to rejoice no matter life's circumstances because we've been made right with You. Help us examine ourselves, Lord, to see if we're worshiping You. To see if we glory in You. To see if we put no confidence in the flesh. Correct us where we find confidence in ourselves. Correct us when we boast in ourselves. Correct us when we worship something other than You. And impress upon our hearts the magnitude, the wonder, the awe of living out the power of the Gospel. We pray and we ask You would work these things in our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.